most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Buck Benny, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. <laughs> well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Uh, we have a interesting Orson for you today. This one uh, does not have Orson on it, so. Uh, but but it's I think it's interesting because it presents just some of the news that was going on at the time, and there's just a lot to talk about in the news. And I think it's always neat to get a perspective, even outside of Orson's of kind of what was going on. And this is a more uh, straightforward news sort of presentation. Uh, but uh, let's just throw it over to, let's start over to Terry first. Terry, what did, uh, is there anything in this uh, presentation that you think uh, they should tune into? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you're right. Orson Welles was not on. In his place was the ABC announcer, George Hayes, not George Gabby Hayes, but George Hayes, uh, who was a- I would, I would have really gotten into it. It was George Gabby Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> well, old timer. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't Gabby Hayes. It was George Hayes, who was a, a staff announcer for, for the ABC network. And uh, he, I believe, worked at WABC for a while, and then he was at the network. Um, and I don't know how much of this he had a hand in writing because at the time, and even when I was working for CBS, it was not unusual for uh, anchors, even if they were journalists, to have their scripts written by somebody else. So I don't know who wrote this script, but what I found interesting about it, and since we all have a, a, an interest in Jack Benny, yeah. is that the news of the day that George Hayes was talking about included a couple of things which the following week the Benny writers would include in uh, their episode. So, for example, there was a story, it was largely a local story, but that kind of caught national interest, about uh, dozens of monkeys escaping from a pet shop in New York City. <laughs> and so the following week, Jack Benny made reference to it when Dennis Day showed up with his friend, who was one of the you know, monkeys. supposed escaped monkeys because yeah. they didn't get them all back, you know. <laughs> and uh, even though I think there were only 70 or 75, I mean, not that that's a small number, but Jack Benny turned it into 500 <laughs> monkeys. That's a, that's a barrel of monkeys. Wow. That's right. <laughs> and then the other story, of course, that that was a national story was the the coal strike, which um, which Hayes refers to in this commentary extensively which was also uh, a topic of, of commentary and of humor uh, across the country. And again, uh, in the following week, Jack Benny um, made much of that. And, and there were just all kinds of little, sometimes local, sometimes national news stories that seeped into um, the comedy world, just as they do on late night shows uh, to this day. Exactly. But you wouldn't at the time, as you listen to Jack Benny's, you don't really think about him tying into those as much. You think about it be more, more of a situational piece where they, uh, you know what the character, they, they're making fun of the characters and the characterizations of each other. But you're right. right. You fit in some topical pieces from time to time. Um, certainly Fred Allen 
probably worked it in as well, I would assume, because Fred uh, probably hope Bob Hope a lot. So yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, I, the last thing I want to say about the the George Hayes episode of, of the Orson Welles commentary is that um, you know in those days in this in the forties, fifties, and even into the sixties, network news announcers and anchors, as they came to be known in the in the Walter Cronkite era and afterwards, um, were also thought of as commentators. Uh, and ABC in particular, which carried the Orson Welles um, commentaries, continued that tradition with Paul Harvey and right. news and commentary. Good so, day. That's right. <laughs> with the rest of the story. <laughs> and uh, so George Hayes was certainly... Uh, very much in that mold. He wasn't just reading straight news reports, but giving a bit of a turn, a bit of perspective and, uh, and analysis. Yeah. Uh, great. Awesome. I'll be Jerry. curious to learn from you, Vincent, what you know about how close to the deadline did, did uh, Orson bail or, or, or did he give a day or so notice that he wouldn't be able to do it? I was really, I was just impressed with the thing that it was just bum, 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 bum news and the little sports and things like that. But that that's what ABC thought of Orson's show that, you know, instead of just having someone come on and tell some jokes or give a recipe that by this point, because, you know, thinking back to when Orson had started this, a year ago um uh, uh that he mixed so many other things in with it that if you needed to, to plug in something at the last minute by uh, uh april 1946 they assumed it would be a news heavy um uh, uh kind of fill-in program mm. so yeah they probably didn't want to lose his audience that much and, and wanted to try and yeah. keep it somewhat like him but of course you can't mm -hmm. replicate him entirely for sure uh, Vincent, what are your, what's your knowledge about this or what did you get out of it? Yeah. So I think there, uh, as Terry and Kathy are alluding to, I think there's a couple big questions here, some of which can't be completely answered. First is the authorship of this, uh, you know, who wrote this? It certainly wasn't Wells. Um, it, you know, there is some commentary certainly from Hayes, but it lacks any of his sort of quick quips, his, uh, you know, attacks on Truman, Hayes, uh, when he mentions that, you know, Truman is a, basically a benign figure and which Wells would have, you know, made some quips about. There's no flowery language. So I think it's pretty clear that Wells uh, either didn't, probably didn't leave them with anything or they decided to just report on the news in a different way. Um, the question that Kathy brought up is when did Wells bail and how much time did they have to figure out? Probably not much. Um, and to answer that question, sort of we'll go around it for one second. So. Um, as Wells is in New Haven and he's finishing up being in New Haven with Around the World, um, he's trying to edit it down. He's trying to make it better, as we've said before. The problem is, is that the show is still, to be blunt, terrible. Uh, it's getting bad reviews. It's always a mess technically, but also critics are starting to pick up on the fact that it's sort of boring. It's on a very old story, uh, you know, that everybody knows the answer, you know, the, uh, the uh, climax, everybody knows what's happening. Uh, people don't think it's funny. And so Wells is desperately trying to make it funnier um, and shorter. Well, Vincent, and, you've covered ahead. the high points. What what are some of the bad things about it? I don't... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, 
thought you were going to do a spit take there for a second. <laughs> was, was there was there anything redeemable about this thing other than the fact it was for us? It's there's sort of lots of redemption in it in that it was bombastic and all the craziness. It was it was Wells personified, but yeah. for, at the time it seems like there wasn't much uh, that, that people were saying good about it. <laughs> Well, it's true. I mean, once we get into Broadway, I'll have some more good things to say about it. But for now, I think you, we do need to realize that it's just sort of clamoring through. And Wells is still not sure this is going to go to Broadway. He makes that clear next episode. Mm -hmm. But here, he's trying to fix it. And Alan Reed, who's playing uh, Inspector Fix, who's later famous for being the voice of Fred Flintstone, mm -hmm. um, he doesn't like the changes Wells is making. He's basically turning Inspector Fix into Dick Fix, this sort of like... Uh, you know, this copper who's dirty and even tries to kill people at one point. So Alan Reed doesn't like it. He's more sort of like a gentle comedian. And so he leaves and uh, Wells steps in as the role. So he's now trying to rewrite it. He's stepping into the role. Um, <clears throat> he's exhausted as I, I, I know the viewers can't see this, but I have a picture of Wells the day this was. And he, he tells the interviewer that the caption of his picture is quote, dot, 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 too tired to stand up that's what he says and then the interviewer here says he makes a big point of this um well said you'll have to take my picture sitting down if i stand up i might collapse i'm ill so what i mean uh by this is that even the next episode wells will say i'm so sick i was in bed you know i wasn't doing anything that certainly shouldn't be characterized of what's happening here he's exhausted he's working too hard trying to fix this thing he's not doing that good of a job um the other thing, I, uh, newspaper printed a schedule. I think it's a joke, but it gives you a sense of sort of Wells's uh, workflow. It says here, he rehearsed Wednesday this week, that we're talking about, till 3 a.m., had a special conference till 4, then ate, quote, 12 donuts and two orders of bacon and eggs. Uh, he went back to the hotel for script work and the bath, returned to the theater Thursday at 8.30 a.m. for lighting, Rehearsal started at 3.30 p.m. And they rehearsed until 8.30 a.m. Friday morning. And then it oh. says, Wells finally went to sleep at around 11 a.m. and then returned to rehearsals that night. So even if that's exaggerated and hyperbolic, which I'm sure it is to a point, yeah. uh, the fact that he, you know, he's not standing up is, uh, I think, warranted. And so I, my guess is he gave them three days to ABC, three days to figure this out. Because once Alan Reed dropped out, Wells is scrambling. Um, and I, both my guess those is he articles didn't, you shared are they both from yeah. this week, the week he was missing off the show? Exactly. Okay, so they're yep. not from next week when he's going to be back. So they're from right. Oh. So this one is this one was published the day after this radio broadcast. Okay. But the picture is likely it seems to be from the context the day before or the day uh, the day before this radio broadcast. So yeah, he's he's not sleeping in his bedroom as he'll tell you next week, thinking about this broadcast. My guess is. We also learned that he doesn't write these ABC commentaries likely that far ahead. I mean, whether or not ABC wanted to read whatever he had written, it's unclear. Yeah. But my guess is he wrote these very sh shortly before he recorded them. Yeah. Well, to keep it timely and to keep it, I would think, and to keep it. Uh, and well, possibly to prevent the network from messing too much, from giving them too much time to. to well, that's censor. true. That's true. That is true. Also, kind of seems like the way Wells sort of works is is what's the thing on the horizon that I need to do now? Okay, I'll yeah, do that. No, no, I, he, he, he just seems, you know, because it ha he's been doing this for a decade. 
of just living for the last minute. But yeah. yep. sadly, this seems to be one. Well, that that this time he's not pulling out. Uh, um, so far, the uh, uh, genius. Uh, yeah. That uh, and and that could be because um, a theatrical, unless you're doing a one man show, uh, a, a theatrical experience as complicated as this is going to involve a whole lot of people. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So um, you know, yeah, it's uh, true. I mean, the other issue that they were having. Uh, uh, this is another article that I have here. This is um, they had a they had trouble um, branding it, essentially giving it a genre. And so critics are struggling. So this is actually uh, a staff writer from the Mercury who's a publicity guy. And he's writing critics personally. And he's saying like, you guys can't be categorizing it as a quote, satirical melodrama. He's like, call, I, we would prefer you call it a musical adventure. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. but, uh -huh. but you, but we'd be fine with anything else other than the satirical melodrama. And he lists all these like, crazy adjectives. We'd prefer you call it a roaring romp around the world, a globe-trotting <laughs> extravaganza, a tuneful trek across continents, etc. <laughs> Rather than hot mess. Okay. So. <laughs> this, yeah, and then they quote this other critic who they liked uh, better, how they described it. The critic just said, quote, you can't classify it properly. And then he says, except for blackface minstrels, around the world has some of everything the theater has ever presented. They said, <laughs> go with that instead well and i can't get i can't get the image out of my head of kathy said a lot of people were involved in this production or whatever but obviously alan reed decided to leave and i could totally see a picture him leaving the theater hopping into his car and running along the ground as he pushes the car out of there because uh, fred flintstone has left the building so there you go oh, there you go wasn't wasn't he off also um falstaff He's Paul Staff Openshaw. Yeah, yeah, and, and on, he was uh, Luigi's yeah, yeah, yeah. friend on Life with uh, Luigi. Yes, he is. He's is all over the place. He's in yeah. tons of radio. And even up into what's lovely is when they brought radio back in the 70s on various um, radio dramatic shows, he would he would come back and, and do parts in them and do a really good job. So um, it was neat that he never kind of completely left that behind. And then we lost him in, I think, 77 is when he passed away. But So, Vincent, but he did not come back to the show? That was a permanent departure? Correct. So, Alan Reed permanently departed. They, Wells claimed... Never uh, to be heard from again. <laughs> never, never. No, Certainly not on television. But he, um, he claimed that he, they were going to replace him with someone other than Wells. But I will say, uh, my years of uh, researching around the world, I found no evidence that they ever looked for anyone other than the boy wonder himself. So um, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't think you, they were ever planning to replace him other uh, with anyone other than Wells. Wow. Yeah, I can see it. Well, uh, anything else from this episode before we get on to other things? Uh, Kathy, did you have anything else? You haven't really shared too much about it, yeah. but are, you're good. No, no, that's a, you know, I found it an interesting sort of slice of life uh, yeah. hearing, yeah. hearing the news. And yeah. so uh, yeah. I'm kind of glad it's there. I'm kind of glad it because it, it gives us yet another um, with him. We get so many different viewpoints and things. And here's a viewpoint that's not even his viewpoint that's kind of on his show. So I think that's a great thing. So I hope you all enjoy it. And uh, we'll be back with more Orson. Hello, everyone. This is George Hayes. Usually at this time, Orson Welles is heard with his own individual commentary. However, Mr. Wells is indisposed today and will not be heard. 
So today we present a special summary of the week's top news developments up to the moment. One year ago this week, the war in Europe came to an end. Happy cries of victory ricocheted from the coasts of America to the frozen wastes of Siberia. For now, now the world could begin its trek back to normalcy. Now we were on the road to reconversion. But during this very same week of celebration on the anniversary of VE Day, this country has seen an industrial atomic bomb thrown into the reconversion machinery. Black gold, coal, the stuff that is the key to our automotive and transportation systems, held the eerie spotlight. Ever since April 1st, America's entire economical setup has been grinding to a standstill. Now, six weeks later, wartime measures like rationing of fuel and brownouts have cropped up throughout the nation. All this because 400,000 soft coal miners went on strike. A walkout called by Union Chieftain John L. Lewis. Among other things demanded by Lewis is $3 million in back holiday pay. But this week, events took place with startling swiftness. John L. Lewis called his miners together and told them to go back to work Monday, tomorrow... But that did not mean the end of the strike. For Lewis had called for a truce, a 12-day period for negotiations with the operators. This was agreed to by the operators, and much speculation has been making the rounds of the nation's capital and in the coal pits themselves as to just why Lewis made this unheralded move. Why did the strong-willed head of the United Mine Workers throw in the towel temporarily? Some observers claim that the truce offer was made because of growing public pressure against the strike. Others insist that Lewis was trying to forestall any government legislative action which might hurt collective bargaining as a whole. But whatever the reason, the nation this afternoon waits patiently, or perhaps impatiently, for the harmony that President Truman says must be reached before Wednesday. This week, federal officials showed a surprising amount of optimism. They lifted major transportation restrictions imposed by the government to conserve fast-dwindling coal supplies. At midnight tonight, the general embargo on freight shipments will be lifted, the railway express embargo will be lifted, and limitations on the size of parcel post packages for mailing will be eliminated. What's more, the government also canceled a further 25% reduction in railway passenger facilities, a reduction scheduled to go into effect May 15th. However, other agencies like city management and governments have looked upon the truce with varied reactions. Chicago immediately lifted its brownout regulations, and this move was quickly followed by other local communities throughout the nation. However, other huge metropolis like New York City took the attitude that they're from Missouri. They want to see that coal before any emergency measures are rescinded. Stirred by events accumulated and magnified by the coal crisis, Congress is getting ready to swing into action. The Senate is prepared to start debate tomorrow on labor legislation. Legislation which may put an end to strikes legally, or at least, curb them. These walkouts, like that of the miners, vitally affect the public welfare, and some senators are of the opinion that this is all wrong. Meanwhile, strict controls went on the output of coal during the two-week truce. The output in all cases will be doled out by Uncle Sam. First preference will go to utilities, railroads, laundries, hospitals, and so forth. After all these needs are filled, then the precious coal will be earmarked for the nation's factories. And this afternoon, the United States government and its people are looking forward to complete harmony in the coal crisis, looking forward to smiling men in coal pits with pick and shovels very busy. 
Strangely, discord seemed to reach round the world this week, even to the Paris peace conferences, where the word failure is bandied around as much as a ping-pong ball. The whole thing seemed to be getting no one anywhere, and rumors had it all along that the conference would break up with exactly nothing accomplished. One major thing was apparent. In the year of peace which followed the war, no peace treaty was written. Like the coal strike, as long as there is merely a truce with no peace treaty set down on paper, the situation remains more or less up in the air. And during the past week, it was more, definitely not less. What faced the foreign ministers of the Big Four was what to do with Italy and all that belonged to her, how to share the loot, as it were. To the victor belong the spoils, was agreed. But to which victor goes how much, spoils, seems to be the $64 question. Secretary of State Burns' ideas ran smack into those foreign commissar Molotov, and the result was hardly one of sweetness and light. Burns said that the matter ought to be left to a general peace conference to be held on June 15th in Paris. Then, says Burns, perhaps the 21 allied nations could do what the big four nations could not do. Molotov couldn't see things that way, claiming that the big four first ought to draft preliminary plans. With this snag hog-tying the conference, the Russian diplomat pulled a surprise. He agreed to compromise. And compromise is one thing that the Russians up to then had never done. So on Friday, things took on a brighter hue, with some observers going as far as to predict that the entire treaty-making situation would be accelerated. And just as the American viewpoints were clashing with those of the Russians in Paris, so were they in New York. On Wednesday, when the delegates of the various nations at the United Nations Security Council meeting filed into their chamber, one member was conspicuous by his absence. For the second time in six weeks, the Soviet diplomat, Andrei Gromyko, refused to show up. Gromyko stated flatly that the Soviet Union simply would not take part in any discussions which touched on the Iranian situation. Any discussion about Iran automatically meant that Gromyko would prefer to walk around the block. It's even been hinted that Russia's political feelings have been hurt. In every major issue raised this week, an Anglo-American bloc has opposed Russia. These issues, as you know, are the Russo-Iran dilemma, the Great Britain-Greece situation, the continued presence of Anglo-French troops in Lebanon and Syria, the proposal to allow the Albanian government into the UN, a proposal sponsored only by the Soviet Union, and Poland's request for immediate action against Spain. Now, in all of these questions, the American and British delegates took opposite stands from the Russian representative. But it was the Australian delegate who posed the most important question of the week. How could the United Nations work effectively as a unified body when one of its major members attends only when it wants to attend, to hear issues only when it wants to hear them? And that seems to be the chief dilemma still confronting the U.N. Palestine presented the world with another burning problem, literally burning, for riots were frequent in the Holy Land. Tension mounted daily during the week through the Middle East as a result. And it all hinged on the Anglo-American Committee's report recommending that 100,000 of Europe's Jews be admitted at once to Palestine. In this recommendation, reaction among the Arabs was violent. King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia, the most powerful ruler of the Muslim world, said ominously, We believe this recommendation is a betrayal. And later he said, I can no longer ask my people to be quiet. Incidents and rioting and killings were reported all through the week from Palestine. Disquiet and unrest seemed the order of the day. 
And it's increasingly more evident that it is necessary to throw oil at once on the troubled waters which are overrunning the Holy Land today. Over in the Far East, United Press reports said that during the week it was decided that Emperor Hirohito would not be asked to appear as a witness or to testify at the war crimes trials in Tokyo. One officer explained that the results obtained from such action would not justify the trouble that might be caused by the Japanese people. The whole policy at the moment in Japan, judging from events of the past week, is leave the emperor alone. Meanwhile, General MacArthur received a visit from his boss, the Army's Chief of Staff, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. The biggest parade ever staged by American soldiers was held for General Ike. And Uncle Sam's number one G.I. saluted the men of the 1st Cavalry Division as they strode by the Imperial Palace. And this past week has seen the departure forever from Italy of its one-time ruler, Vittorio Emmanuel. The former Italian king and his wife stepped aboard an Italian cruiser and sailed into exile. They begin their new life today in the guest palace of the Egyptian king, Farouk. A cordon of police lined the entire route after the former Italian monarch arrived in Alexandria. But a late development in the Iran situation has cropped up, and now it seems that the negotiations of the past week between the Iranian government and the self-proclaimed autonomous province of Azerbaijan have broken down. What's more, the Tabriz radio claims that Azerbaijan is ready to fight if it fails to win its demands on Tehran. The announcement blames what it calls reactionary elements in Tehran for the failure of negotiations. And a new wrinkle in public relations was introduced in this respect. The Iran propaganda minister, Prince Farouz, refused to let newsmen visit the Azerbaijan premier. This despite the fact that the premier expressed a desire to see the newsmen. The premier, you know, headed a delegation which went to Tehran two weeks ago for the negotiations. The delegation has been living in a walled estate from which newsmen have been barred. Earlier, a guard at the estate said the negotiations were all over. Right here at home, President Truman celebrated his birthday, his 62nd, this past week. And Mr. Truman also took to the airlanes during a four-hour visit to New York. The chief executive, speaking from Fordham University, placed a great importance on the shoulders of the nation's educators in the future of the American people and mankind. The president points out that in the hands of our educators lies the problem of human relationships and the challenge of the atomic bomb. Mr. Truman asserts that the world must look to education in the long run to wipe out ignorance that threatens catastrophe. Said Mr. Truman, it is up to education to bring about that deeper international understanding which is so vital to world peace. And the chief executive maintained that our one defense against the scourge of the atomic bomb rests in mastering human relationships. In his own words, defense against the atomic bomb lies in our mastering human relationships all over the world. And the president adds, it's the defense of tolerance and understanding of intelligence and thoughtfulness. Through the week, the scarlet name of Pearl Harbor has been brought up time and again. Evidence on the happenings that led to the disaster have been discussed at length. But at the moment, it looks very much like the Pearl Harbor Committee is so sharply divided on its prospective findings that it may have no report on its inquiry before the deadline. That deadline was fixed by Congress as June 1st. Seth Richardson, committee counsel, has laid before the ten senators and representatives a lengthy summary of all evidence on both sides of the controversial issue. However, this report has provoked varied interpretations by the members. 
And Senator Ferguson of Michigan says he doesn't see how the group can get together on any recommendations within the next three weeks. Well, the former American president has come home. Herbert Hoover returned to Washington after a 35,000-mile trip around the world to study famine conditions. He was met today at the airport by Secretary of Agriculture Anderson and Assistant Secretary of State Clayton. Hoover will confer with President Truman at noon tomorrow. Right after that, Hoover will hold a news conference, but up to that time, the former Republican chief executive refuses to comment on his trip. Along with Hoover, Herbert Morrison, Lord President of the British Council, also arrived for conferences with President Truman. Morrison will remain in the United States for about one week. And then he's going to go to Canada to meet with Canadian officials. This past week has seen two red-letter days in the annals of horse racing. Assault followed in the footsteps of his daddy, Bold Venture, to cop the classic Kentucky Derby. And then this very same horse galloped home ahead of the field in the historic Preakness, the richest stake of all. Only the Belmont Stakes remains ahead of Assault, for the proud thoroughbred makes it a grand slam among the major turf classics. And this was the week when the two most famous outfielders in the major leagues, Ted Williams and Jolton Joe DiMaggio, came up to plate with the same problem. The bases were loaded. Joe DiMaggio hit a home run, and Ted Williams struck out. But Williams' team, the Red Sox, went on to win the game. One of the craziest stories of all came out this week, a story just chock full of monkey business. It seems that about 75 monkeys broke out of their pet shop in Manhattan and started out making their own way in the world. Most of them seemed to prefer the grocery business or the liquor shops. They were everywhere with the police frantically trying to capture them alive. Finally, all but 15 were rounded up and those are still at large. No one knows why the monks took it on the lamb. Some say they just went stir-crazy. In any event, it was more fun than a barrel of people. Orson Welles will be back again next Sunday with his regular commentary. You've heard a special news program reported by George Hayes. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.